This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This weekend's big wave certainly made for viral video, particularly on the Big Island. Footage of a wave crashing over a two-story building on Ali'i Drive made national headlines. The Keohokona uh, Surf and Racket Club is mopping up after a wave went over the rooftop. And further down the coast, high surf disrupted a wedding reception. For, fortunately, no one was hurt. We talked to uh, Talmadge Magno this morning. He's from the Hawaii County Civil Defense, which is wrapping up its damage survey. Old Kona Airport is still closed. Uh, we still have sand and rocks to remove from that area. All other beach parks are open. So far, we've only gotten one report of any impact to structures, and we're trying to actually nail that down to get a site survey and so forth to see to what kind of extent that might be damaged. That's the one, um, that footage that the video's been aired with the wave crashing over the condominium in KO. So that, that's all that we're trying to track down. You know, I know there's a lot of footage out there of the large waves, but uh, fortunately, I think any impacts are pretty minimal. I think it's just so dramatic to see this because, I mean, this wasn't really even a hurricane. And, and, and to see a, a wave of that size crashing over a you know, two-story building on Ali'i Drive, I mean, that was really something to see. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, fortunately, this doesn't happen very often. Otherwise, um, the whole development of that Kona Coast would, would have evolved differently because, you know, mostly, I think you're, you're probably familiar with Kailua Kona. That, that place is usually like a lake, very calm, and, and that's why Kona is so desired. But then this is summer, and summertime is indicative of the Southern Hemisphere during their winters to have storms that push swell up into the North Hemisphere and impact Hawaii and you know the surfers on the south side you know Waikiki Ala Moana they look forward to this time of year because that's when they get their waves uh, well you know having having a rare large long period swell like this um, comes with every decade or longer and so unfortunately that's that's what's going to happen uh, when you get big swells like that you're going to have damage and to coincide with that a little bit above you know, normal high tide. Um, so when the peak happened just between 5.30 and 6 Saturday night, that's when the most impacts are happening. I know DLNR cited a 25-foot wave off Diamond Head, but you know when you know you drive along Ali'i Drive, which I I did j- earlier this month, those buildings are just so vulnerable there. And and I don't know. I mean, do we have to start the the conversation about a managed retreat? You know, with rising sea levels and the risk that we're seeing. Well, fortunately, like I said, you know, it's it's usually decades plus that this kind of swell is generated. Um, but you know, you're right. The whole the whole island chain you know we're seeing you know north shore gets more impacted now because of uh sea level rise you know so so you got those issues it's the same thing that that we might face here on hawaii island we don't we don't have those offshore reefs to break up the swell so you know what you get coming in is pretty much the full energy breaking on the shore but right you know planning you know we're gonna have to figure out the mitigation for these impacts if sea level rise gets to the point where just a normal south swell starts impacting these vulnerable locations. You know, when we all watched the uh, wave crash the wedding party o- over there, you know, uh, my concern was for the palace. You know, how do we protect that historic uh, structure? Uh, and, and, you know, what do you do about those seawalls? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's... One reason that seawall, I'm not sure when that seawall was, was put in there, but 
you know, that's definitely not uh, something that was there um, naturally. And so that, that was put in place already to protect that area, to stabilize that area. So what needs to be done, all, all planning that needs to take place, you know, as, as this earth changes. It's definitely something that's going to be, has to be addressed as far as any, any discussion about coastal developments and, and mitigations with sea level rise, protecting our historic structures, you know, you know where, where, where should new growth go and so forth. But that's what the, the planning process is going to have to be about. And then, and then uh, I guess, funding the process, whatever it you know, takes. Well, it certainly got people's attention. And so, you know, what do you hope will come out of this? You did try and warn folks, you know, that, hey, this could be trouble. Right. And, you know, um, we know we put out our messaging and, and uh, closed down beaches just to kind of take that extra step. And, you know, when things come to fruition and then they actually see the hazards, they, you know, I think that's when you realize that you know, what we're forecasting, what we're talking about is a true potential for, you know, damage and, and, and safety as far as people getting hurt. So one, preparedness, yeah. You know, when, when we put out our messages, definitely heed what's going on, uh, heed what National Weather Service reports. It's kind of interesting that we had multiple things going on at the same time. We had Darby skirting the, the island with pretty minimal effect, but, you know, it just kind of brings to light we are in the middle of hurricane season. We've got all the way to November, even though they forecast a kind of a light season, but you know, it just takes one hurricane to hit us with impacts that we'll have to be dealing with recovery. So people need to be prepared, whether they have their personal plan to know what they, they're going to do, if they're going to shelter, their communication plan so that they know once where they are, what they're going to do. But all those things have to be planned out. We have that information on our website, how to do your family plan. You know, other other groups, Sea Grant Hawaii puts out a lot of the information as well as the National Weather Service, but just being prepared and, you know, these additional incidents like a big, large south swell, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff that we can or, or we'll have to deal with uh, independently of these big storms. But nevertheless, there's, there's a lot of hazards out there that we are trying to monitor and get people the information so that they can make their safe decisions. Well, you know, Hawaii Island has certainly, you know, seen its share of uh, tsunami damage, you know, more recently the, you know, Kona Village, you know, resort, you know, Hilo's history with the tidal waves. But for a, a storm like this one, I guess it just really took people by surprise. Right. And so, Catherine, before I go forward, I just want to correct you. Mm-hmm. You mentioned tidal wave. And, and I had another reporter mention, you know, in the beginning of her questioning, you know, about this tidal wave, and I had to correct her, this is not a tidal wave. This is a, a large, long-period swell. These are waves not related to the tide, though the tide did enhance the, the impacts when the tide peaked and the swell was going. You know, there's, there's a lot of differences between tsunami, tidal, tidal waves, and just a huge swell. And people need to recognize all the differences. But we, we've certainly seen, you know, the damage of that waves can do. And and I think for those larger uh, systems that come in uh, and have created, uh, you know, the damage, uh, like I said, to the Kona Coast there and, and in, in Hilo, um, for something like this, when, when, you know, you don't think it's going to be that bad. 
Exactly, you know, because it's abnormal for the South Shore to get that big. They they get it every summer. They get that, like I said, the southern swells coming up from the southern hemisphere, but very rarely do they get this big. You know, if you if you talk about the North Shore of Oahu, you know, the the impacts from the the winter storms. This is like what an occurrence that happens several times over a winter, right? You know, that's when they go look for jaws to have their events and and the eddy to go off and stuff like that. But for the South Shore, they have big swells like this, pretty rare. So I guess people just need to be on alert, uh, you know, no matter what time of the year it is, uh, and then heed the warnings when the officials say, you know, stay out or be careful and prepare. You really need to do that. Right. You know, you got to know your abilities, your vulnerabilities, and, um, and, you know, respond accordingly. Unfortunately, like for us, Kona, you know, usually the ocean is malia, flat, calm. Um, so when something like this happens, uh, you've got your seaside homes, you've got, uh, you know, your beaches, and then more vulnerable to inundation. As far as like the damage over at the old Kona airport, I mean, is that just like the rocks on the road kind of thing? Yes, pretty much. It's like quite a bit of sand and rocks to the point where there's so much rocks, there's like no beach anymore. So they're going to have to remove rocks from the beach, you know, to, you know, have that, that beach aspect again. And it was to the point where I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but, you know, there's there's a sand berm, you know, pavilions, and then you come to the roadway, which was the old tarmac for the airport. And that the sand and rocks got pushed all the way to the, the tarmac area, the hard, the pavement. And so they realized that they needed heavier equipment to remove the debris, which they'll do today. Other than that, and we've been very fortunate that nobody was injured or anything like that in this incident. Right. I'm, I'm very thankful that we didn't have a, uh, you know, any more um, issues with safety and so forth. You know, looking at the pictures for, you know, during that wedding, you look at that big swell and you know, that wave is crashing on rocks there. So it's like, it's unforgiving if, if you're in that zone of all that energy. Yeah, they were very, very fortunate. Anything else that you think we should underscore? No, just that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a natural occurrence and it's forecasted. We can definitely mitigate. So, you know, paying attention to what's going on and um, modifying your behavior so you can avoid any danger will get us through any kind of disaster. That was Talmadge Magno of Hawaii County Civil Defense getting us the latest on the cleanup following the South Shore wave surge this weekend. Managed retreat may be the only long-term solution as sea levels encroach on our coastlines, but where does that leave historical sites? Hulihei Palace in Kailua-Kona was directly in the path of this past weekend's looming waves. Video shows a wall of water uh, wreaking havoc on a wedding party, interrupting celebrations and potentially putting the palace in peril. 
We have Manu Powers on the line today, Regent and President of the Daughters of Hawaii, which oversees the management of the palace. Powers is also the co-owner of Sequest Hawaii. We last spoke to her in January after tsunami surges from the Tonga eruption swamped her company's office. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. So, gosh, yeah, I mean, last time we chatted earlier this year, uh, you were in flooded conditions <laughs> at, your, mm-hmm. uh, at your workplace, and, and, and this was a close call for the palace. This was a close call. Um, you did mention climate change and encroaching sea levels and so this is something that we've been talking about and planning for to the degree that we can with the resources we have Um, but it's going to be an ongoing problem and i think that the events of this past weekend were regrettably a perfect illustration of that so you know what did you think when you when you heard about this um, I was shocked. Um, I'm actually traveling. I'm in the mainland currently in Chicago. I'm about five hours ahead. Um, and so the first thing I wanted to do, of course, was get everyone on the phone and, and get a damage report. But it was about one o'clock in the morning there at that time. So I had to sit idly by and wait to find out how we fared. Um, you've seen the videos. I think now most people in the country have seen the videos. And it's jarring. Um, I'm happy to say that the wave we saw you know, hit the seawall, crashed over the seawall and uh, into the wedding party. That video was the one wave that really wreaked the most havoc and uh, was of the largest scale. Um, so we actually fared very well, surprisingly. Um, when I was able to finally get our executive director on the phone, um, I was really relieved to hear that we actually came out just as good as we would during a typical swell, really. Um, and so it was a huge relief. So no damage to the ponds, no no water in the basement? No water in the basement. Um, and that is a you know an occurrence that happens more regularly than we would like um, with large swells or large water events. Um, the pond is still in the same condition it was, which is just sort of overrun with sand. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, catch some old footage that aired on PBS recently of the pond um, back in 1973, and I was shocked to see the difference between now and then. Um, and that sort of goes to show for you know us who are constantly there and day to day taking in the change, you know, from climate, from time, from use, um, what's happening, which is that we are already in. A deficit. We are desperately in need of you know, the renovation project that is going to be forthcoming with the county and state shortly. And so when an event like this happens, we get further in the red. We're now pushed further behind. And so we are constantly trying to claw our way out of that hole. Um, the palace is almost 200 years old. It's not surprising, um, but it's in constant need of maintenance, upkeep, and the restoration project that's coming up is going to be really, really key in its survival. So what's planned? We understand that there are some repairs that need to be done to the seawall. Right. And so thankfully, there's been some money earmarked for that. So the seawall and the palace wall itself. Um, The seawall is our first line of defense in instances like this weekend. um, It has seen erosion from, you know, typical 
swells and then something like this happens and um, it keeps chipping away at the wall, um, these sorts of events, I should say. So having the wall repaired, maintained, will add that extra line of protection for us um, and you know, obviously our main goal of preservation, but um, it's something that goes at a pace <laughs> that we would love to see sped up some, but, you know, there's only so much we can we can do there. Right. So it is in the state budget for right now. We're just waiting for when that money's going to be released and when the project will start. Right. And as you can imagine, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of tape that goes along with it. I hesitate to say red tape, but, you know, there's uh, a shifty to work with. And, and we are fortunate in the respect that we have some, some advocates um, on that level that are really familiar with the project, really familiar with the grounds, really familiar with its history, and who are working really hard to sort of move that money through, release those funds, do everything according to the book. And so hopefully the, uh, the palace will be there for another 200 years. Um, but again, that you know, seawall repair, that money, that's just one component in many that need to be addressed. Do you know how much has been set aside? Uh, around $400,000 has been set aside. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact figure in front of me, um, but around $400,000. And again, that's just the seawall. So right. we uh, have some serious fundraising that we need to do on the grassroots level for small projects like the shutters the collection itself. Now, I could talk all day about how we could spend money if we had it, um, but this is a good start. Okay, well, historic preservation, you know, is obviously an important uh, part of what you do, uh, but, you know, if it comes to managed retreat, I mean, moving, you know, the palace isn't really a, a, an option. Not. No, it's not. It's not a feasible option, and it's so funny. I'll, I'll be down at the grounds, on a lovely Kona day, which, you know, aren't they all lovely Kona days typically? And I'll be walking around the grounds and it's so easy to see why someone would choose that particular spot to build this home. Um, It's so idyllic and it's so peaceful and beautiful. Um, And the bay itself, Kailua Bay, is simply incredible on most days. (laughs) So I understand why the palace was built there, but now we are presented with a whole set of challenges that um, weren't, you know, foreseen at right. that time. And and you know, we were all very fortunate; nobody got hurt. But certainly, you know, liability is something that we're going to have to address as well. Because when you've got yeah crazy waves like this, uh, yeah, totally unexpected. Yeah, first and foremost, I mean, I think there's two really big wins here, and one is that no one was hurt. Thank goodness. Um, two is that. You know, there was minimal damage to the palace, um, if any, really. I would consider the state of affairs as it was uh, last week before this weekend swell. But yeah, it's it's an interesting you know thing. We we talked a lot about, or you've heard a lot about, and this is the question that keeps being thrown around in the community: Why was the wedding? Why did the wedding still happen? Um, And I think that there's you know multiple reasons for that. But, you know, this is something that was out of the ordinary, and sort of, <laughs> I think that's why it's so shocking. Um, and so it's not expected. It wasn't expected. Um, we did have multiple conversations with the wedding planner, um, and I'm assuming she was communicating with the uh, wedding party. But I know these days, after the pandemic, 
Um, it's so hard to call off a wedding when all of your friends and your family have traveled so far. I'm sure a calculated decision was made on their part, and they crossed their fingers and hoped for the best. Again, um, I'm glad no one was hurt. And yes. my understanding is they danced the night away, and so hopefully all's well that ends well, um, and they'll have quite the memory yes. of their wedding day. <laughs> and, and the video to... to, to uh, Yes, proof. <laughs> yeah. And the national coverage to go right. along with it. Yeah. But thank you so much. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure, Catherine. It's nice to speak with you. It's always good to have eyes on the palace in any regard. So thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. We have been talking with the Daughters of Hawaii Regent and President Manu Powers about managing the risk to the historic palace after seeing what happened this weekend with the summer wave surge. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. As you review your summer reading list, we thought about some of the famous authors who have come through or lived in Hawaii. Jack London, Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark Twain, Herman Melville. And for today's quiz, we spotlight an award-winning author familiar to generations of young adult readers and some of their parents, but probably not by her birth name. Almost a decade ago, one of her well-known books was produced by the University of Hawaii on its main stage. Seen by Hawaii audiences, the story was set in what uh, at first seems to be a utopian society, but turns out to be dystopian as the story progresses. Our mystery writer's novels vary in content and style, but she always seems to share the common theme about the importance of human connections. She was born, Sina Hammerberg, on March 20th, 1937. And our question for you, who is this American author? Born in Honolulu in the territory of Hawaii. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. two months since the state began requiring that visitors make reservations to hike Diamond Head Monument two weeks in advance. Well, as of yesterday, it will now allow bookings a month in advance. Alan Carpenter is Assistant Administrator for State Parks. He talks about how limiting the number of hikers and instituting fees have helped for a better 
experience for both residents and tourists. We, we did set a capacity, and it's, it's roughly 3,000 a day, right? So there's a capacity of walk-ins per hour and a capacity of vehicles every two hours. And so even though 3,000, it sounds like an awful lot, when you spread them out across you know, 12 hours of being open, it really has changed that experience overnight to a much more serene one. There's really no more lines. There's no more bad traffic. And so it has, honestly, it's changed the character. And it's, we've, we've created a, a, a much higher quality experience for the visitor. And we also have more or less because we set the capacity on vehicles. We're, we're inviting locals to come back. They, were, they, they often avoid these really um, highly crowded places like Kanama Bay. I haven't been there in years, you know, because it's so crowded. Diamond Head now is, it's almost guaranteed for a local resident to come and get a parking place, you know, and just go on whenever they want, you know, because it was never the 100, 200 local residents a day for any of these parks where we set up these reservation systems, whether it be Haena on Kauai or Waianapanapa in Hanamaui. And now at Diamond Head, it was never the residents that were causing the crowding. It was not those first 200, it's the next 3,000, right? So by setting that limit on that next 3,000 and spreading them out, it, it creates a better experience for local residents as well. Well, I remember, you know, at a time, you know, when I'd be working out early in the morning at Diamond Head, and I would see a queue at like 5.30 in the morning of vans and taxis, you know, trying to get in. So when, when the gates opened at 6 o'clock, they were in. Right. It was, yeah, like the start of a horse race. And um, those those days, I mean, it still happened early in the morning, um, not to the degree it used to because there was no reservation required. So everybody thought they could get in and they would fill the lot until it was over full. And then people would still be coming and going, coming and going and being turned away. Now, those those turnarounds are less and less frequent as people understand that you can't get in if you don't have that reservation in advance. And how are so, we getting the word out to the visitors that you have to have reservations? So that's that's a good point. So HCA has a little mini campaign going, social media campaign helping us out. You know, it's it's peppered all over our website, but there will always be the people who come completely uninformed, and that's because, you know, we can't have it be in the front page of the paper every seven days when a new crop of visitors comes, right? But as the websites around the world, as the tourist bureaus around the world get updated and as it gets into more media markets, you know, eventually it becomes just common knowledge. But yeah, there's always glitches in the beginning. And so, gosh, as far as the local residents that want to go hiking, I mean, are they getting caught up in, uh, you know, in some of this at all? Or, or has it been fairly easy for them? It should be easy for them because you know, the local residents, Prior to um, us changing our fees, we actually charged everybody, including local residents. Diamond Head was the only place where we charged everybody. Um, when we changed our fees during COVID, we raised them for out-of-state visitors, and we erased them at Diamond Head for locals. So no reservations, no fees for local residents. And um, you're welcome anytime, and I'd be shocked if you ever get turned around from this point moving forward. Oh, well, that's good. So then uh, you've gotten the kinks out <laughs> of the system, but uh, what, what's new? What, what's different now? So actually, we extended the um, advanced reservation period from 14 days to 30 days. Our messaging is we want people to plan in ahead, and 14 days is a little bit, but 30 days is better. So the reason we didn't put it 30 days from the very outset was that you, you want to test, in particular, the ability of the system to manage the amount of traffic, right? And this is our busiest park. So, I mean, there's always, there are glitches. We had glitches on day one. Today, we opened, we went from 14-day advanced purchase to 
30 days, and I don't think we've gotten a phone call yet. So that means it has transitioned smoothly. So the volume, if there's an uptick in volume, it hasn't affected the system. The, 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 the newest addition to the system that also went into effect today is that now people can request their own refunds. So if you buy a ticket for a month from now and you realize I got the wrong day, you can just log back into the system and you can change it yourself with the 14-day advance. We weren't really offering refunds because we wanted to test the volume. So now it's a little more convenient and less work for our vendors because the refunds are now automated. You are still keeping the 3,000 cap. The numbers, yeah. The, the daily numbers haven't changed, and the hourly numbers have not changed. And it's probably worth noting that there's one kind of major aspect that we may have to adjust in the future. We have not yet seen a return of the Asian market, and you know the Japanese market is our, our biggest foreign market. They tend to, to travel differently, often in groups and buses, and so we have a very low volume of those PUC vehicle tickets right now, and that, that demand may increase as other world markets open, and so that, that may be an adjustment for us in the future because more people may be arriving via different methods. We turn down the number of walk-ins and allow more people to come in the 15-passenger buses, et cetera. And that's supposed to happen, you know, in August, you know, when... It's on its way, right? Yes. So we, we, we sort of use the, the term adaptive management. And, and that's it's a very apt description of how we're managing our reservation systems right now because users do change, and they change very rapidly, uh, and patterns change. So as they change, we will adapt. So we're trying to create systems that are flexible in that way. Well, I recall a time when I think it was the National Park Service that instituted the reservation system at Haleakala because there were fights that were breaking out over parking spaces. Exactly. And Hanama Bay, when I went there recently, it was it just interesting to observe how they were managing the crowds, you know, because you, you had certain times that you, uh, 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 you know, reserved a space for, or local residents, you, you don't have to do that. It's, you know, pretty much walk-in, but you do have to watch the film. <laughs> uh, and, and like I said, they have some kinks to work out. But, you know, just from the state parks perspective? I mean, what have we learned um, from the other experiences from these other areas on different islands? I think, first and foremost, you have to continually adapt. Here's what we learned at Haena, which is the one we did first, which has been in the longest. And um, by the way, that one has transitioned from a um, commercial vendor to manage parking to a local nonprofit, Hui Makana, who is a tremendous volunteer partner. They've been working with us for 20 years, and they are now co-managers, and it's become a really, really uh, value-added nature of the work that they are doing, not just to manage people, but to help manage a cultural landscape. It's really, really, it's a paradigm shift. So that's that's been an amazing journey over there as well. That's one that's it's been in since 2019. So the biggest change that we've seen is over there, where we were holding back the majority of, of parking slots in the beginning for visitors, it has become so popular with residents who are so ecstatic to be able to go back to this place that was literally the poster child for over-tourism. And now they go, and it's the serene experience, and of course, Ke'e Beach, the Kalalau Trail in the Pali Coast is, you know, just a, a world-renowned uh, cultural and scenic masterpiece. And so people being able to come back to a place that, that they've really felt pushed out of for so long has meant that we're actually accommodating more local vehicles than we are visitor vehicles. So that is a wholesale shift. So visitors are getting in there more by shuttle. 
So we've, mm. we've taken cars off the road, invited the locals back, and everybody has a better experience. And by the way, all creating a vast amount of revenue for us. So less people, more money, higher quality experience. It's, it's been a, a, a pretty amazing success. I mean, if I recall, you had some pretty serious uh, cash in the coffers when you instituted the fees. We have we have an unprecedented amount of money in the bank right now. Yes, during COVID, everybody was afraid of the the, the slowdown of the economy, and of course, we get the bulk of our money directly from visitors paying entry fees. So we had we had zero money coming in when, when we were shut down. So yeah, that was a scary time. But the the return has happened more rapidly, I think, than anyone expected. We are poised for a a, a period of growth that we, frankly, we've been a very, very, very understaffed, undermanaged park system for too long, especially given the importance of our parks to visitors and to the overall economy. So, yeah, that is changing. We have money in the bank, and the legislature just listed our spending ceiling, allowing us to spend $12 million this year instead of less than a million last year. So nowhere to go but up, and we're going to try and reinvest the, those dollars in the park, and most of that money is coming from out-of-state residents. Can you say how much we've made so far this year? Say the first six months of this year. I think we are on pace. I, well, let me just let me put it this way: we I'm looking at the um, June check we just got for Diamond Head, five hundred fifteen thousand dollars we got. So, you know, that's that's a lot of money. Um, you're looking at you know close to six million from one park alone. If we, if that if that amount stays throughout this year, so um, I think we are at. I don't want to misspeak, but we're, we're at around $15 million for the last year. That was Alan Carpenter, Assistant Administrator for State Parks, who we talked to yesterday afternoon. Uh, he was chatting about how much the Department of Land and Natural Resources is making by changing the fee structure and instituting a new reservation system um, at Diamond Head. As of yesterday, visitors can now make uh, reservations to hike the Diamond Head Monument 30 days in advance as opposed to two weeks. The fee for visitors is $5. Local residents get in free with your ID. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. On the next Fresh Air, Fisha K. Ali, head writer of the Disney Plus series Ms. Marvel, the first show or movie in the Marvel Universe to star a Muslim hero. Its heroine, Kamala Khan, battles bad guys, but she's also trying to figure out how to be a teen living with her immigrant parents in Jersey City. Ali was born in England to Pakistani parents. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the latest push for vocational training. Reporter uh, Jessica Terrell covered the shift in schools. We have her on the line today. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. 
So, yeah, you were looking at uh, programs in our public schools. What did you find? Yeah, there's a there's a big shift going on in high schools as uh, Department of Education administrators and educators really take a look at how many kids in the state are um, coming from families that are struggling financially and are sort of realizing that college is still a, a very good pathway to financial success, but it's not guaranteed anymore. And uh, there's, a, there's a college debt crisis. So all these factors are kind of pushing um, a, a really a big uh, expansion of academic and, um, and career tech programs within high school to kind of figure out what can we do within school to help kids graduate so that they're either on a path to college or have the skills they need to, to make a living wage and be able to stay in Hawaii. And we've seen these academies at various high schools uh, pop up. You know, what can you tell us about those? Yeah, so academies are kind of like a school within a school, and it's becoming more of a structure at high schools. Um, the academies can focus on early college, where kids enroll in college classes and graduate even maybe with an associate's degree uh, or certainly a number of credits toward a degree. Um, but they can also be academies that focus on um, uh, hospitality or uh, like artificial intelligence, business management, all kinds of different career paths. And some schools are actually becoming all academy schools. So students after maybe freshman or in their sophomore year pick an academy and a career pathway and they follow that all the way through high school now. And our school superintendent, Keith Hayashi, I mean, he was doing this at Waipahu High School. Yeah, so the new superintendent, he's a big proponent of what's called career tech education. He feels like it really uh, was a big part of transforming Waipahu High School. And, you know, he was very clear that he doesn't want um, Waipahu to be a model that has to be replicated across the state. He's not looking for every high school to be Waipahu High School. But I think he is, um, you know, really going to be encouraging more schools to have a, a deep conversation within the school and within their community about what the needs really are for students in that community and how public schools can help um, support them thinking about those future potential earnings and, and what it means to really make a living wage here in the state. Well, how do they gauge, you know, their progress? That's, that's a big question. So, um, you know, I talked to some uh, education advocates who really want um, there to be kind of an audit, particularly for um, making sure that we know who's enrolling in each of these programs. We know in other states, um, students of color in Texas, for example, have been drawn more to cosmetology programs. So much so that the state, I believe, was actually looking at cutting that program because the career potential earnings of that um, of that pathway really weren't the same as someone who was in like a, a STEM or engineering focused program. So there are definitely some calls to figure out how exactly do we determine if this new push for career tech education is really having the economic impact that folks wanted to have. And I think that's something we'll definitely be tracking. And I know uh, as you get on uh, the higher education, uh, you know, I know that the uh, community colleges, though, are seeing a, a dip in their enrollment. And they offer some, you know, really good programs. You've got, you know, the paramedic program up at uh, KCC, you know, culinary arts. Uh, you know, you've got the uh, heart training over at Leeward. 
Yeah, there are some great programs. I think the idea in high school, though, is, you know, if you can get kids thinking about stuff when they're in high school, then they're going to develop some real world skills and they're going to get a sense before they even get to college about whether or not this is something they're really interested in. A lot of these programs give students real world experience. Um, and so you can figure out, are you really interested in this before you go and, and start spending tuition? And we also know that college enrollment, particularly at community colleges, is down across the nation. And, and that's something that everybody is grappling with is, um, you know, we come out of the pandemic and, and folks are just more in the workplace. Yeah, well, I guess we've just got to get these kids uh, uh, in a place where they can find their passion early. <laughs> but thanks. That's so, the goal. I yes. Think. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thanks. That was reporter Jessica Terrell with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lupa, author of Nature's Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Totems in Your Ecosystem. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about rejoining the community of nature. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, FerraroChoi.com. It was a deal that was supposed to help provide a much-needed place for treatment programs for Kauai's children and young adults, but delays in getting up and running have been a problem. HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us today to talk about the issue. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the Adolescent Treatment and Healing Center on Kauai was meant to be a place for kids and young adults to go for substance abuse treatment. An effort started up in early in the early 2000s by the late Mayor Brian Baptiste. There was state, federal, and local money, um, and the center still hasn't open. There were community meetings to sort of figure out where the center would be, and there were a lot of people who came out and said, no, not here. So seeing that, um, Grow Farm Company gave the county of Kauai about six acres in 2017 to get this building up and running. Kahu Jade by Ali Ali Batad is a community member, and she's been in, involved in the process since the early 2000s. She was there when the land was gifted over. So here she is describing the scene of what it looked like back then. I got to bless the land when it was given. There was very few people there, no pomp and circumstance. Like I, um, I might have said this before to you, but there was a, a man from the drug court there, and there was there were people that were actively in drug court at the time there, and he he wanted he had an oo, and he was going after the guinea grass, literally blood, sweat, and tears, and. I said, this might take us all year. And he said, good. I like my blood, my sweat, and my tears in this land. 
He said, I want to break the cycle. And since then, the center still hasn't opened. And there's been a long list of of um, reasons why, which includes the county cutting ties with a service provider, and then the pandemic hit, and it was given to the Department of Health as a quarantine facility. They're not using it anymore, but the center is just sort of sitting empty. Uh, the county wanted to repurpose it for the Office of the Prosecuting Attorney. That still hasn't happened. And most recently, Grow Farm has come out and said that they want some judgment from the courts to say whether or not who is the rightful owner of the land. Um, there's a specific part in their deed that says that the county has to use it for the health care of children and adults. The county says that they are eager to see what sort of plays out in court, and they believe that they have used the land properly um, during the pandemic, especially. Right, because they've needed it for, for mm-hmm. COVID, uh, positive cases. Uh, to quarantine. Yeah, and sort of um, if a house was too small, families would kind of be split up and some of them would be staying at this treatment center, which has eight beds, running water, electricity. It was a good facility for its purposes. But community members are sort of still speaking out. They're heartbroken about it. They want the center to be up and running. And there was a county council meeting about two weeks ago where some members of the public spoke out again, including uh, Tracy Fu, who her son had died of a fentanyl overdose about less than a year ago. And she talks a little bit about her experience as a mom. I spoke out to give our kids a chance, a fighting chance. I spoke out because of the overwhelming pain and loss that drug addiction has brought to my family and so many families here on Kauai. I spoke out because I've lived with the adolescent addicts through their addiction and their recovery, and I have been their support system. I went to every court appointment. So, you know, if there was this great need, so why haven't, you know, the providers been able to, you know, make it work? So sort of the county's reasoning with that is that Grove Farm has been threatening legal litigation for the past two years and that nobody wants to sort of put their foot forward and uh, become the service provider. Well, I, you know, I know Kauai has had um, lots of uh, issues with uh, drug overdoses, you know, and then, you know, now with this uh, kind of issue of fentanyl showing up on our shores, you know, I mean, it's pretty scary um, to think of all these drug overdoses, you know, how they could be affecting our young children, too. Mm-hmm. And there's, I believe that the police department has sort of made a few statements. Um, I know that there's, they had gotten one drug dealer, um, arrested them, and they're saying that that was sort of one of the um, top drug dealers on the island. I believe that that's still in court right now, and they're heading toward a jury trial. And so, gosh, uh, where have the kids that have needed the treatment, I mean, where have they been going all this time? They have gone to um, Oahu and Hawaii Island, and, you know, Tracy was telling me that, you know, it costs so much money to visit their kids. And you know, on family days, if they are, sometimes they're just not able to go over and sort of witness in person where they're, like the progress that their kids are having. And so, gosh, so at this point, then it's in the courts and we're just waiting uh, to hear uh, what the judge says? Yeah, we're just sort of waiting to hear right now. Um, Last time I checked, I think last night, there still wasn't a date for this yet. So it's all up in the air and this center still remains empty. 
So uh, what, what does the county say? Do they still want to make this a center, a treatment center for children? Yeah, they, you know, the their heart is in it. They want to get this up and running. There is a severe need on island. So, you know, both groups want to make this happen. It's just when will it happen? Gosh, okay, interesting story. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the award-winning American author born in Honolulu in the territory of Hawaii on March 20th, 1937. Her dad, Robert Hammersburg, was a U.S. Army dentist stationed on Oahu, and she was given the name Sina after her paternal grandmother. But Grandma wasn't pleased. She wanted her granddaughter to have an American name and sent a telegram saying that. So out went the Norwegian name, and at the age of 11 months, wearing a tiny lei around her neck, little Sina was baptized Lois Ann Hammersburg. And that was her name until she got married at the age of 19 and became Lois Lowry, the answer we were looking for. Uh, Lowry has been honored with many awards, including the John Newbery Medal for her 1993 young adult novel, the Giver. It has sold more than 12 million copies worldwide since its publication and was adapted into a feature film starring Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep in 2014. Uh, we stumped you on this one. Uh, no winners today. But that is our quiz. And if you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to get to know the new head of Maui County's new Agriculture Department. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you've heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.